The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, thank you for this evening, this time to be together as the people of God. We're grateful for this midweek uh, oasis, really, of, of biblical instruction, of prayer, of fellowship with your people. So remind us, O Lord, that we are dependent on you at every moment, Lord, not just Sundays and Wednesdays, but every day of the week. Uh, for in you we live and move and have our being. We feed on you, O Lord. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we're not to be worried about uh, tomorrow's troubles, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so we are to feed on you day by day and receive from you the nourishment and spiritual sustaining grace that we need to face each of the day's troubles. But we're grateful for this special grace of midweek uh, service and an opportunity to come together and study. And Father, I pray as we look at the topic tonight of God's providence, uh, God's providential care and rule over this world, that you would instruct us, O Lord, and prepare us, O Lord, that we might rest confidently in you, that we might be bolstered in our faith, that we might learn to give you thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would therefore be able to worship you better and be more stable in our Christian lives and be able to give good counsel and comfort to others that are going through trials and to remember even in times of blessing that all things come from your hand and not be arrogant or conceited, but be thankful. So we pray that all these themes and others would come tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking tonight at Calvin's view of um, the doctrine of providence. And uh, on the cover, I gave you a picture of a sparrow, uh, not falling to the ground, as the verse says, but flying through the air. But as Jesus said, even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of God. And so we are going to study tonight a God who rules over all things, small and great. And so we're looking at the doctrine of, of providence. And so I want to give you this quote from Calvin right at the beginning. Basically, we're looking at uh, the Institutes tonight, Calvin's Institutes, Book 1, uh, God the Creator, looking at God the Creator, and then chapters 16 and 17. We're not going to get as far as 18 tonight. There won't be enough time. But in those three chapters, uh, Institutes, uh, Book 1, and then chapters 16 through 18, Calvin unfolds the doctrine of providence. Calvin says this, God is deemed omnipotent, not because he can indeed act, yet sometimes ceases and sits in idleness or continues by a general impulse, that order of nature, which he previously appointed, but because governing heaven and earth by his providence, he so regulates all things that nothing takes place without his deliberation. Well, that's an incredible statement, really, if you look at it, just start to unpack it. God's omnipotence then resides in the fact that he's actively ruling, not he's just a potential ruler, like he might weigh in at a certain moment, but that God is actively ruling at all times over, over everything. And that's what we're going to study uh, today. And I'll tell you this, this is not uh, without its controversies, this, the doctrine of providence. We're going to get right into some of those issues. Uh, it brings with it a lot of questions about some of the miseries and the pains and sufferings that we have in this world. But we shouldn't imagine that Calvin in the 16th century didn't have his share of pains and miseries and sufferings, like he had no idea what that might be about, uh, or that there weren't, wasn't, there weren't wars and rumors of wars or turbulence and all kinds of issues that were facing him in his life. I would render, I would guess far more than anybody in this room, just as you look at the turbulence of that time and what he went through personally, what his livelihood was like, what kinds of personal attacks there were in his life, what kind of, of medical issues he faced in his life and the kinds of sufferings he had. Uh, he wasn't in some ivory tower just kind of spinning out doctrines on providence, but actually was living these kinds of things out. So Calvin is asserting here that God, by his power, nourishes, maintains, and rules the world by his providence. And so he's going to assert God's special providence, as it says in the title there, against the opinions of philosophers. He begins by saying that creation and providence are inseparably joined. What we mean by that is that God created a universe that was dependent on him. He did not create a universe that could exist apart from him. He had no desire to create that kind of a universe. But the universe that he created was constantly going to be upheld by God, by the word of his power. Calvin writes this, Moreover, to make God a momentary creator 
who once for all finished his work would be cold and barren and we must differ from profane men especially in that we see the presence of divine power shining as much in the continuing state of the universe as in its inception. So in other words, it seems as though God is continually willing this kind of universe that we're existing in. And uh, Jonathan Edwards had, had a, you know, a borderline kind of iffy doctrine of God's continual recreation of the world, instant by instant, that kind of thing. And uh, you know, I, I don't know that we need to go that far, uh, but, but that God's power exerted from his mind, from, from his throne to uphold what he's created, that's what the scripture maintains that apart from the word of God's power, the universe would cease to exist. Uh, the universe is continually depending on God at every moment. And so God isn't just, you know, having created, finished uh, his creation. As you read in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, that God, uh, you know, rested from all of his work. Uh, and that somehow implies that God ceased putting forth any kind of energy or effort toward the universe. That's not what it means. You know, Jesus said, my father is always at his work. So this very day, and I too am working. And so continually uh, exerting power and energy toward the universe. Psalm 104 uh, declares this, I think, plainly. Psalm 104, verses 27 through 30, talking about all these different creatures, whether it be the, the, the great creatures of the deep or the lions that creep out at night and hunt their prey or, or rock badgers or all different kinds of animals. Summing it all up, the psalmist says this, these all, all of these creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. And then when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. I mean, look at those verses. The active involvement of God with feeding every living thing and deciding when they're all going to die. God controls all of those things. When you take away their breath, they die. When you renew, they send forth your spirit, all things are renewed. And again, Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. So in other words, we continue to exist because God wills it. That's the kind of uh, teaching that we have here. Therefore, Calvin says, there's no such thing as fortunate chance or luck. These things I've brought up recently in some of my sermons. Still true, even though Calvin said it. Let's put it that way, all right? Um, or turn it around, even though I might have mentioned it in a sermon. I mean, really, I mean, the more you think about this, the more sense it makes. How would you even define luck? What, what is it? I mean, what, what is, Greg, what is luck? Can you define it? It's uh, whatever it's supposed to be for tonight's show. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I, I guess it's just the unexplainable, the stuff you can't predict. You know, the spinning wheel, the roulette wheel, that kind of thing. You just don't know where it's going to come up. There's good luck and bad luck. Those things we just can't explain, then we call it luck. The non-Christians do, you know, or the non-thoughtful Christians. And I just, I, I just don't want you to be not a thoughtful Christian on this. There's either God or luck, not, not one or the other. I mean, when you push the doctrines to where they need to be, that you're just not going to have luck or fortune or chance. Christian ought never to use luck or fortune or chance to describe the seemingly random events of life. Calvin wrote this, suppose a man falls among thieves or wild beasts or is shipwrecked at sea by a sudden gale or is killed by a falling house or tree. Suppose another man wandering through the desert finds help in his straits, having been tossed by the waves, reaches harbor miraculously, escaping death by a finger's breadth. Carnal reason ascribes all such happenings, whether prosperous or adverse, to fortune. But anyone who has been taught by Christ's lips that all the hairs of his head have been numbered, will look, no, look further afield for the cause and will consider that all events are governed by God's secret plan. So, in other words, Calvin, taking the sparrow falling to the ground or even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, that Jesus is saying how much more than the big things of life. If something as small and insignificant as a sparrow falling to the ground or the number of hairs that, that you may have on your head are under the, the care, the watchful care of God, then how much more is it that everything in life will be? That's, that's how we should consider Jesus' words. That's what Calvin's doing with it. I like what Calvin had to say here. He said the sun, for example, up in the sky has a huge role to play in the sustaining of life on earth. It gives light, it gives heat, nourishes, quickens all living things, brings harvests. I mean, we can't live without it. We're dependent on the sun. But God, said Calvin, to claim the whole credit for these things 
waited until the fourth day of creation to make the sun. He did then, uh, he did them himself on the, uh, on the third day, making the plants, etc., sustaining them with the light he created at the beginning, and then delegated the job to the sun from that point forward. So in other words, in effect, God's saying, I want you to know I don't need the sun. I can get along without it. But I'm going to use the sun from here on out, etc. And so we have in, you know, in the, in the new heaven, the new earth, there is no need of sun or moon or lamp or light of stars. Or other, but God gives it. The glory of God is going to work just fine. By the way, I remember having a, an investigative Bible study with some, some scientific uh, Chinese uh, international students at Duke. And one of them brought up how Genesis 1 was flawed and how, you know, it wasn't until the fourth day they, that God made the sun, and yet there's all this light. And I said, listen, God can do light without the sun. He's able to do light. He's actually very good at light. All right. <laughs> I actually had an analogy. I said, do you work in a lab there at Duke? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, is there a basement in the lab? And he said, yes, there is. I said, is there anything happening down? He said, yes, there are more labs down there. I said, is there any light down there in the basement? I said, yes. Well, where does the light come from? Are there windows? He said, no. I said, where does it come from? From lights. I said, how is it then that you think that we human beings can light a darkened basement, but God doesn't know what to do until the sun shows up? You know, <laughs> he, he it left that point quickly and we were done with it. He wasn't, he didn't, wasn't a believer at that moment, but realized that there really wasn't any reason for throwing Genesis out on such a trivial point. But Calvin goes further to say God, because of his zeal for his own glory, lets the sun wait a little bit until the fourth day and says, I'll take over, I'll do it, and then I'll delegate the job to you. Therefore, says Calvin, a godly man will not make the sun either the principal or the necessary cause of these things which existed before the creation of the sun, but merely the instrument that God uses because he so wills. For with no more difficulty, he might abandon it and act through himself. I tell you what, that concept is very powerful for your own concerning your own service to Christ. Amen? Just realize, if God is using you, then praise God for that. And don't get arrogant because God can replace you. At any moment, he can replace any of us. So don't get a big head if God's using you, but rather be thankful, be grateful that God would choose to use you, that you would have a ministry, that you would have a role to play. So I just love that concept that if even the son, God can replace it and doesn't need it, then, then how much more any one of us individually. Calvin says God's providence governs all. There's no area of his universe it doesn't cover. God's omnipotence is not merely theoretical, but says Calvin, watchful, effective, active, engaged in ceaseless activity. He wants you to understand that God is moving. He's at work. He's energetic. Just rivers of energy pulsating from the throne of God. That's the picture we have of God. You know how um, Elijah has, uh, sorry, Ezekiel has that picture of God, uh, you know, uh, with wheels, wheels within wheels, and there's this sense of motion and movement. God gets around, and, and that's the sense that we have. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he wills. And Calvin says that that verse refers to a certain deliberate will, God actively willing certain things. Also, Calvin says, God's rule should not be confined to natural principles as though God were somehow locked into the physics of what he originally made. Like he set it up with all these physical rules, these physical laws, and then just basically says, look, what can I do? They're just going to run like some grand machine and there's just nothing that I can do about the wheels of that machine. I set it up like that and I just am not going to interfere. That's not the way it is at all. I mean, the, the laws of physics, the laws of biology or chemistry, so to speak, if you use that language of law, just comes from the consistency of God choosing to do things in that pattern and in that way. God is not bound by those laws. I mean, isn't there ample proof of that in, in the miraculous life of Jesus? Walking, take walking on water, for example. Isn't that his way of saying, I don't need to submit to the same laws that you all do? You know, I walk, I rise above that. And so... The law of gravity doesn't work the same on me as it would on you. I think that's what walking on water says to me. But God sustains the so-called laws of the universe and upholds them. And therefore, we should not fear nature as though it had some irrational, independent power to harm us. I mean, think about, uh, you know, a reaction in an electrical storm that you might have some kind of a fear that a random bolt of lightning might hit you and kill you. Well, didn't we already cover random? What's another word for random? Chance or luck, right? 
there isn't there aren't any random lightning bolts so if a lightning bolt hits you you'll know who did it okay <laughs> is that comforting to you <laughs> not if one actually hits me no <laughs> But all humor aside, basically what Calvin is saying is let's reduce it to one issue. It's you and God. It really has to do with you and God. There aren't these mindless forces of nature. We're not polytheists here wondering what's going to rise up and get us in the darkened forest. All right? We're not going to have some fears of irrational natural powers. God rules over everything. Everything is under his hand. Uh, he says there is no erratic power or action or motion in creatures but that they are governed by God's secret plan in such a way that nothing happens except what is knowingly and willingly decreed by him. There's no erratic kind of herky-jerky motions here going on in nature or in the, in the world that God is not uh, controlling. And by the way, that, that, that definitely um, includes creation being subjected to futility or to frustration, as in Romans 8. So we are in a very violent world, a world with hurricanes and, 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 and uh, you know, tornadoes and, and other things like that, mudslides, famines, all kinds of things going on. But if, if you read Romans 8 carefully, for the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's providential language, isn't it? So all of the futility and the troubles that you're seeing in the natural world are coming from God, the one who subjected it. And someday he's going to fix them that he's going to make it perfect that's what we're looking at here all right what is the nature then of providence the nature of providence well it is not mere foreknowledge let's keep that in mind it's not mere foreknowledge calvin said this at the outset then let my readers grasp that providence means not that by which god idly observes from heaven what takes place on earth but that by which as keeper of the keys he governs all events And this is a very important statement. Thus it pertains no less to his hands than to his eyes. Calvin's a great writer. All right, now why would he say to his eyes? Well, it just has to do with the Latin. The Latin uh, root of providence is providio. And and it means to see ahead of time. So you could think or be misled in the doctrine just by looking at the word that we're talking about God seeing what's, what's coming, seeing what was ahead. Well, the Bible clearly reveals that God sees what's coming and he speaks a prophetic word about things that are coming and we believe in that. But that, this doctrine's bigger than that. The doctrine of providence, is, it, it pertains no less to his hands, says Calvin, than to his eyes. Yes, God sees what's coming, but his hands are active in providence. He's doing things. And so therefore, we have to go a little deeper on this issue of, of seeing. We use the expression, see to it. Let's say you have a boss who's talking to an employee and he tells him to see to it. What does he mean by that? Get it done. To see to something means to get it done. We know that. And he's not expecting the guy to pull up a chair and watch and look. You know, that's not, that's not what he's, you know, or, or, or look after them. You know, somebody entrusts their children, says, I want you to look after them while I'm gone. Well, you know that's not a passive activity. You're not just watching someone's children like they're a TV program. Okay? I mean, there are things that need to be done. So you, you get then the sense of providence here. It has to do not just with seeing the needs, but meeting the needs, being active in meeting. It's not just seeing ahead of time. So when Abraham said to Isaac, the Lord will provide, and it's interesting in the Hebrew, it's the same root. It has to do with vision, seeing. So when you, you look at that in the, in the Hebrew, it says the Lord will provide. He, it uses the same visionary kind of language, but God will see to it is what he's saying. And so that saying came, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so, Calvin, what he's saying here is it's not just a matter of God's eyes, though. It's a matter of his hands. And so it was on that mountain. Remember the ram in the thicket caught by its horns. It wasn't just that God saw that if he's not going to kill Isaac, something has to take Isaac's place. And God saw that. And God was very well aware that something, if he's not going to kill Isaac, there needs to be something. And that's it? There was no ram in the thicket? Well, there was a ram in the thicket. You see, God acted with his hands. He, he opened up his hands and gave to Abraham the ram. You see, that's what providence is about. It's not just that God sees the need, but he meets the need. Doctrine of providence. It's active. It's uh, energetic. It's God doing things. 
Calvin talks about the issues of general and special providence. He refutes the notion that God uh, that allows God some indefinable, ambiguous, vague control, but which keeps man's will at the center of all things. You know how you know God is kind of generally in control, but man's in charge of his own deal, kind of thing. Um, you know, and so we're going to keep that space for man's free will. And so we're going to give that first place and then God just acrobatically works around that. Okay, Calvin, no, we're not doing that. All right, we're going to refute that. For Calvin, God's providence then meant active rulership. What I pray you is it to have control, but so to be in authority that you rule in a determined order over those things which you are placed. So in other words, that's what it means to rule and he's actively ruling. Yet scripture does assert that God exerts a special care over some of his creatures more than others. This is especially true when it comes to the church, to his people. God specially cares for them. And so we don't imagine then that that means that he doesn't, in, he isn't in some way sovereign over, you know, the sparrow or feeding the, the whale its plankton and all that. He does all that. But when he uses kind of special providence language, it means that there are uh, additional resources flowing toward the church, toward the elect, toward the people of God that are necessary to achieve all of God's purposes. So we, there's a special providence going toward them, toward the people of God. And I think that language is biblical as well. So it's merely, however, a subset of his universal or general providence. Calvin said, we must prove God so attends to the regulation of individual events and they all so proceed from his set plan that nothing takes place by chance. So, in other words, the way that God cares for you individually, personally, the way he cares for the church, the way he's looking after his believers, uh, is a subset of the way he cares for everything. But there is a special attention given to those. Okay? Well, the doctrine of special providence is supported by Scripture. Uh, God's providence also directs the individual, says Calvin. Many verses describe God's control over the events of nature, um, both so-called good and bad. Calvin writes this, In the law and in the prophets, he often declares um, that as often as he waters the earth with dews and rain, he testifies to his favor. But when the heaven is uh, hardened like iron at his command, the grain fields consumed by a blight and other harmful things, as often as the fields are struck with hail and storms, these are a sign of his certain and special vengeance. If we accept these things, it is certain that not one drop of rain falls without God's sure command. You know, Calvin actually does a lot of work in the Deuteronomy blessings and curses. And though he, he's very well aware of how that fits into the redemptive plan of God and the Jews are in a special position and all that, Basically, this language of I'll make the sky like iron above you and the ground bronze beneath your feet, etc., that, that Calvin would extend that to the whole world. That wherever you see the sky iron above anybody's head and the ground like bronze beneath their feet, it's God that did it. And we shouldn't imagine that it was just Israel just for that time, but that God has his purpose. You don't have an accidental iron sky or an accidental bronze ground. Those things are happening for a purpose of God, that's all. And so blessings and curses come from God uh, for the whole world. I think that's what Calvin is saying. I think there's, uh, there's some validity that, to that, uh, uh, that approach. Other than that, then you've got just random forces of nature, really. I mean, think of it. You know, what is it makes the sky iron above anybody's head? I think that means drought. You know, why would there be a drought and God didn't cause it? You would have to think then there's just some random forces of nature at work there, but God's specially at work over here. And I actually think many Christians tend to think in that, that, that way. And, and what Calvin's doing is he's stretching it out to start covering the whole globe, which it really does. So there are no droughts except God gave them, and there are no, there are no uh, rainfalls except that God gave them. Not a single drop of rain falls to the ground except that God willed it. So we should keep that in mind. God then uh, establishes both the regular patterns of nature and their interruptions. All right, so there are regular patterns. Uh, he talks about that after the flood. As long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. What's he talking about there is the regular rhythms of life. There's going to be regular rhythms and patterns, and God sets that up. But he also interrupts things as well from time to time. There are, there are some odd some strange interruptions, and we may wonder about them and try to, try to figure them out. I remember when I was a senior in high school, on May 9th, there was a snowstorm in Massachusetts. 
snow all over the ground in May. I mean, it accumulated. It was there for a day. The tulips were all killed. I remember that. There were flowers everywhere. It was odd. I remember thinking that. I know this also, not being a believer at the time. I did not ascribe it to the providence of God. (laughs) But, you know, there's a rhythm to life. There's a rhythm to those things. And then there are those unusual times. And all of those things under the hand of God. That's what he's saying. Calvin also says God's providence especially relates to mankind. Scripture clearly testifies to the sovereignty of God over human decisions. Jeremiah 10:23. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Okay. So in other words, Jeremiah is saying, I wouldn't have chosen this vocation if you hadn't called me to it. You know, I think that's probably what he's saying. It's not up to me to decide. You wanted me to do this. You chose me before I was born to be a prophet to the nations. But he's extending it beyond his own case, isn't he? He's saying it's really not for us finally to decide what we are. And uh, several Proverbs teach us as well. Proverbs 20, 24, man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? In Proverbs 16:9, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, some people wrongly try to come to intermediate positions on how God's sovereignty relates to human will. Calvin says let this, let them now say uh, that man is moved by God according to the inclination of his nature, but that he himself turns that motion whither he pleases. Calvin's going to say, nope. I mean, the thing with Calvin is he's just relentless. You know, it's like there's no middle ground. It's like, you know, God just kind of moves based on the nature of a man, what he's like, etc. Calvin rejects this kind of position. Nay, he says, if that were truly said, the free choice of his ways would be in man's control. Perhaps they will deny this because he can do nothing without God's power. Yet they cannot really get by with that since it is clear that the prophet and Solomon ascribe to God not only might, but also choice and determination. What's he referring to? Go back one page. Jeremiah chapter 10 and Proverbs 20 and 16. All right? So the prophet is Jeremiah and Solomon. He's meditating on those verses. Look at them again. This is what Calvin's doing. He's saying, it doesn't fit. I know, O Lord, it is not for a man to determine his own steps. So Calvin's saying, please feel the weight of that. And don't come up with some compromise or some intermediate position. All right? Um, So uh, the prophet Jeremiah and Solomon ascribe to God not only might, but also choice and determination. Elsewhere, Solomon elegantly rebukes this rashness of men who set up for themselves a goal without regard to God as if they were not led by his hand. In Proverbs 16, 1, to man belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. Calvin says, it is an absurd folly that miserable men take it upon themselves to act without God when they cannot even speak except as he wills. So what is Calvin seeking to destroy? Independence. Figuring out what you're going to do on your own, that kind of thing. Or for a Christian, the Christian version is figuring out what you're going to do and then asking God to bless it. You know, that kind of thing. Instead, to go to God and say, what is your will? What do you want me to do? I am your servant. You're the master. You're the king. That kind of thing. He's just trying to destroy that, that really damnable pride and independence. That's the nature of sin, really. Scripture reveals that God rules over even the most random, seemingly fortuitous occurrences. He cites the example of a branch falling from a tree and killing a passing traveler. Calvin says Scripture ascribes even such random events to the Lord. He cites, for example... Remember the cities of refuge that are set up? And there are two different ways that somebody could die by the hand of another. One is with malice of forethought and the other is without. So he delves into the second case. Suppose one man kills another without malice ahead of time. How did it happen? What would we call that? Person A kills person B accidentally. That's what we use that language. What is an accident? Well, legally, in this case, I didn't intend it. And that's a big deal for you. That's huge. Other than that, it's called first-degree murder, right? We might call the other thing manslaughter, depending on the circumstances. I'm not a lawyer. But what Calvin is, you look at these verses. Exodus 21. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him should surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to the place I will designate. Now, who's the I in that sentence? God. God designates the place, right? And God is therefore saying, just a few words before that, if I let it happen, right? In other words, let what happen? Let one man kill another without malice of forethought. 
So in other words, what Calvin's saying is that that's not an accident. God is involved in that. Uh, even clearer is this example in Deuteronomy 19.5. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. And as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Isn't it amazing that God sets up these cities of refuge but doesn't promise that heads of axes aren't going to fly off and kill people? I mean, God elaborately sets up a whole re refuge, city of refuge system and says a head of a an axe may fly off and kill some people. Just want you to know what kind of world you're living in. All right? I will allow that to happen. That's part of my plan that occasionally axes are going to fly off and kill people. And it does happen even today, whether an axe or not, or other kind of accidents on the job, some kind of power tool or, you know, power nailer or some other thing, and somebody's dead. And in effect, what God is saying is, I'm sovereign over those things. It, I, I am involved in that. It's not some random force in my universe, and I had no idea about it. That's what he's saying here. Now, yeah, it's really a, an interesting meditation, the whole head of the axe thing. I remember when I was going through doing scripture memorization in Deuteronomy, I came to that. It's like, I actually stopped and said, God, why don't you stop the axe head from flying? <laughs> is God powerful enough to stop axe heads from slipping off of, you know, axes and killing people? Of course he is. He could do that any time. He could just decree from now on, no one's ever going to be killed by an axe head flying. He could decree that. He just doesn't. It's just an interesting thing to meditate on. Calvin does that. So also, of course, the casting of the lot, and you've seen this verse before, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33, very much like the sparrow falling to the ground. It's a, it's a how much more kind of thing. If something as insignificant as a lot cast into the lap is controlled by God, then how much more all these other events? That's really what he's saying. By the way, it wasn't insignificant when it came to, uh, to Jonah, uh, identifying him as the cause of the, uh, of the tempest. You remember that? or those that were casting lots at the foot of the cross for Jesus' um, garments. Um, and the elevating of one man over another. Psalm 50, 75, 6 and 7, No one from the east or from the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings down one, he exalts another. God's providence also regulates natural occurrences. For example, winds. By the way, this is the one where the non-Christians get involved sometimes and become theological. They call them acts of God, remember? You know, so what, 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 what do insurance companies call acts of God? Claims. Hurricanes and claims, anything that comes their way and would cost them some money. Yeah. Um, so hurricanes, floods, ice storm, tornadoes, you know, natural, natural occurrences. And they call them acts of God. Well, Calvin's saying they are acts of God. So are the other things. <laughs> all of it. They're all acts of God. That's what he's getting at here. Uh, but winds, for example, like the wind that brought the Israelites the quail and uh, the wind that, uh, of course, opened up the Red Sea for them to cross um, and the wind that brought the storm to Jonah's ship. From these examples, said Calvin, I infer that no wind ever arises or increases except by God's express command. Wow. Can he do that now? These are, these are extraordinary circumstances. The quail, Red Sea crossing, Jonah. How about just those winds and not the others? What do you think? It's his wind. It's his world. There just isn't a stray random force going on in the universe. It isn't God's. You see what I'm saying? So that's why Calvin says, if that were not so, then God would not say he makes winds his messengers. Psalm 104, God's in charge of the winds. So also elsewhere, the weather at the sea is ascribed to God. You know, Psalm 107, where various people in various circumstances are in trouble. Some are in trouble through uh, committing a crime. Some in trouble through... Uh, an illness or a sickness, some wandering in a desert looking for an oasis or some water trying to get their, get their way back out of uh, the desert to a, a place where they can live. And some out in the sea. Um, and uh, they're, they're in the, the midst of a storm in the sea, like I was talking about John Newton a couple of sermons ago, in the middle of a, of a storm. It says in Psalm 107, "...for he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves." They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. Verse 29, He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and He guided them to their desired haven. Well, you know who the He is in these verses. It's God. God brings the storm. God abates the storm. All of those things are in God's hands. And God rules over it. And you know how they say there's no atheists in foxholes. There's a lot of spirituality going on on a heaving deck. You know, and, and people, I think, at that point recognize um, 
recognize God. And interesting, uh, Erasmus did these things called colloquies, and um, they're really commentaries on religious life and all that. And there was one, my favorite one, is called The Shipwreck. And it was just an exposure of just the, the vapid nature of medieval Catholicism. So here are these sailors, and they're like crying out to all the saints. And uh, somebody offering to burn a candle as tall as himself in the cathedral at Paris if he can um, get out of the shipwreck, uh, all that sort of stuff. And then at one point, it's a, it's a uh, dialogue back and forth. At one point, this one statement comes in a very dry white, Christ never came to mind. <laughs> Yeah, all the saints, all this, the Mother Mary, and all that. Christ never came to mind, you know. <laughs> so, but that's, that's that's Erasmus. That's the way he went about his reform. I think Luther's way was better. But at any rate, um, all things in God's under God's sovereign control. So also birth, um, the birth of a baby. Uh, Calvin writes this, So too, although the power to procreate is naturally implanted in men, yet God would have it accounted to his special favor that he leaves some in barrenness, but graces others with offspring. And so just in the distinctions that he makes from, from woman to woman, and, and we know there's actually a good number of barren women in the Bible whose barrenness is an issue, and then it becomes a part of the story of the narrative and how the thing gets resolved one way or the other, frequently uh, you know, by prayer. So God rules over that. God opens the womb and God closes it again. And even something as simple as eating bread, Calvin writes, there is nothing more ordinary in nature than for us to be nourished by bread. Yet the Spirit declares not only that the produce of the earth is God's special gift, but that men do not live by bread alone, because it is not plenty itself that nourishes men, but God's secret blessing. Just as conversely, he threatens that he's going to take away the stay or supply of bread in Isaiah 3.1. And indeed, indeed, that earnest prayer for daily bread, Matthew 6.11, uh, could be understood only in the sense that God furnishes us with food by his fatherly hand. I think one of the simplest applications for this is the next time you sit down to a meal, thank God for it. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, we do that anyway. No, no, I mean, thank God for it. I mean, just pause and say, God, you supplied me with this food. You got it to me. You brought it here from the farmers, from the, you know, the, we could be living in famine. We might someday live in famine. We shouldn't assume that the way things are now, how you get your food now is how you'll always get it the rest of your life. We should be thankful and we should be pausing. And, and I, I tell you, there are so often times that I look back a moment ago to a very much a rote prayer. I prayed too quickly. wasn't thinking the way I needed to. So just thankfulness. By the way, if you want to know generally where we're heading in all this, this doctrine results in praise and worship and thankfulness to God and a sense of peacefulness in the people of God, both in, in prosperity and in trial. That's, what we're, that's where we're heading. You want to know why we're studying this? It's for that. So that you'll praise and worship and honor God always and thank Him for whatever comes your way. And so that you'll be humbled by it and so that you'll be stable and steady no matter what comes your way. That's the purpose of this doctrine. Does that make sense? All right, so let's keep going. Let's talk some more uh, about uh, fortune, chance, and contingency. The doctrine of providence, according to Calvin, is no stoic belief in fate. Well, the Stoics, for the Stoics, the universe was something like a machine, inexorably moving to some preordained conclusion carried there by the very nature of the machine itself. So, you know, that's the vision, I think, of people that would put science first and then try to fit God in at some point. See what I'm saying? Like a Stephen Jay Gould who's going to come along and say, look, there's no contradiction between science and God. They operate in completely different realms. But for him and he's deceased now, but for him, science just had these laws, this machinery that just took you a certain place. And God kind of had to fit in that, fit in that wherever you thought he would fit. But that's not the way Calvin saw it. There isn't, there isn't a machine. There's God. There's a person. And he's thought about everything. And he is a person with feelings, a person who loves, who wants a relationship with us, you see and who has reasoned everything out and has a plan and is working his plan out. That's different than some mindless machine, isn't it? So Calvin says this, We make God the ruler and governor of all things, who in accordance with his wisdom has from the farthest limit of eternity decreed what he was going to do, and now by his might carries out what he has decreed. From this we declare that not only heaven and earth and in the inanimate creatures, but also the plans and intentions of men are so governed by his providence that they are born by it straight to their appointed end. So in other words, God is a wise, loving ruler, not just uh, 
the originator of a vast machine. So, you know, there are some people, they're not Christians. I mean, there were philosophers, others, people in the Roman era, the Greek era that believed in fate. And they believed that things were ordained before they were born. Before they, I mean, this idea of something being predestined or ordained or the fates have said it, it's not, you know, tied to Christian theology. It was out there, you know, with the non, non-believers and the pagans as well. But Calvin's taking a step away from that idea of fate or fatalism. That's too impersonal. Rather, we're dealing with a being. We're dealing with a wise ruler who loves and who wants a relationship. You see the difference? So that's what we're dealing with here. God then must be understood as the ultimate cause of all things. Said Calvin, nothing is more absurd than that anything should happen without God's ordaining it because it would then happen without any cause. By the way, this is part of the reason why I reject the Arminian view of God's foreknowledge of people having faith and based on that, he chooses them. Because what's the origin of that faith? Where does it come from? It's like God is just looking ahead into something that doesn't even exist yet and surprised finds faith in you before you're even born. And then based on what he sees in you, chooses you. It's man-centered even though the man isn't there yet. It's odd to me and strange. Calvin says it's absurd. If that man, if that woman has faith, God gave it. Aside from the fact that the Bible directly says so. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's a gift of God. He's giving it to you. But aside from that, even aside from that direct text, it's absurd to Calvin that there are these things springing up or existing in his universe that God's, you know, has nothing to do with and isn't ruling over. Now, for us, the true causes are hidden. The true causes of events are hidden to us. The concept of random or lucky occurrences merely stems from human ignorance of God's plans and purposes. We don't know what God is doing. Calvin said this, but since the order, reason, end, and necessity of those things, which happen for the most part, lie hidden in God's purpose and are not apprehended by human opinion, those things which it is certain take place by God's will are in that sense fortuitous or lucky or by chance. That's why we say it. He gives this example. Let us imagine, for example, a merchant who entering a a wood, a forest, with a company of faithful men unwisely wanders away from his companions and in his wandering comes upon a robber's den, falls among the thieves and is slain. His death was not only foreseen by God's eye, but also determined by his decree. For it is not said that he foresaw how long the life of each man would extend, but that he determined and fixed the boundaries that men cannot pass. Yet as far as the capacity of our mind is concerned, all things therein seem fortuitous. It was bad luck that that happened to him. That's the way we would see it, but not to God. And so God ordains all of these things. All the days ordained for me were written in God's book before one of them came to be. I think this is what Jesus means when he's talking in Matthew 6 about, uh, about uh, anxiety. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. And then at one point, remember, he says, who of you by worrying can add a single cubit? And that's, it's, it's a measurement, single cubit to his span or whatever. You know, people try to figure out what does that mean? Like you're going to get taller by worrying? I don't think that's what it means. I think it's like your race has a distance. It's like, a, like you know, 800 meters, the 1,500 meters, 3,000, 5,000, whatever. There's a distance measured. And your worrying isn't going to push the finish line back one, you know, 18 inches. That day is set and your worrying isn't going to change it. What it will do, however, it'll affect how you live that time that God has said. That's the, that's the difference. So Jesus is saying, you can't move the finish line at all by worrying. It's not going to move. And so don't worry. That's what Jesus is giving us here. Fate, the idea of fate, is mentioned in Ecclesiastes. Does that trouble you? Well, I mean, you have to read Ecclesiastes. It shouldn't trouble you. That's an interesting book, isn't it? I mean, as you're reading it, there's a lot of interesting things in Ecclesiastes. But at one point, uh, he says this. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 9.11, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Okay. It's like somebody needs to put an arm around Solomon and say, brother, you're a bit off message here. Okay, we need to get you back online with the rest of the scriptures. But I think what's going on in Ecclesiastes is this language of under the sun. And what that means is from a human point of view, if there were no God, 
I think that's really what it means. From the human point of view, if there's no God, then time and chance happens to everybody. And it doesn't seem to make any sense why the fastest guy didn't win the race. That's what he's getting at there. Okay. Now, contingency... That has the contingency means this happened, therefore that happened. The chain of events, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, the chain of events is complex, incredibly complex. I mean, think about it. Think about just all the things that happened. I think a 30-volume set could be written about a single day in history. I mean, it's that complex. It's that, you know, I was reading, I, I get Military History magazine. And this guy was writing an editorial just about history and saying historians make the mistake of making everything clear and logical. And that's not the way history really happens. You know, people talk about the fog of battle. What that means is no one really knows what's going on right now. You know, the good generals just know about 10% better than the guy that they're facing. Uh, but it's just mayhem and all that. And then for years later, people are trying to figure out when happened, what happened, etc. And so some clarity comes as you're looking back. Hindsight's 2020. You can figure some things out. But there's just some fogs that'll never lift because human life is complex. And so contingency has to do with the chain of events. So Calvin gets into that. Contingency is dictated by the plans and promises of God. Necessity then comes from the mind of God, not from nature itself. What God has determined must necessarily so take place, even though it is neither unconditionally nor of its own peculiar nature, nature necessary. Okay? And he gives this example. A familiar example presents itself in the bones of Jesus. When he took upon himself a body like our own, no sane man would deny that his bones were fragile. In other words, that they could be broken. Could the bones of Jesus be broken? You'd have to say yes, in, in, in a natural sense. They were no stronger than anybody else's bones. All right, but he continues. Yet it was impossible to break them. Read John 19. Why was it impossible to break the bones of Jesus? Because God said not a bone will be broken. Were Jesus' bones broken? No. All right, and so then it is necessary that Jesus go to the grave without any broken bones. And so that's, it's a necessity because God willed it that way. Once again, we see that distinctions concerning relative necessity and absolute necessity, likewise of consequence and consequence, were not recklessly invented in schools when God subjected to fragility the bones of his son, which he had exempted from being broken and thus restricted to the necessity of his own plan what could have happened naturally. Basically, what he's saying there is, and I'll just kind of rephrase it here. In other words, by the will of God, Christ's bones were the most unbreakable substance on earth. Okay? <laughs> I mean, not iron or steel or anything. like Christ's bones were unbreakable. You're like, well, it was never really tested. If somebody had just gotten out of mallet, I think they'd have found it as breakable. As, yeah, but somebody didn't get out of mallet. And that's the whole point. It was impossible for it to happen. His bones couldn't be broken. Just like that lineage of David when it comes down to one baby that's being hid by a nursemaid. Remember when Athaliah is trying to slaughter everybody? Was it really possible for that child to die? No. Couldn't be. Because then David's line would be snuffed out. And I think God willed that it come down to one child to teach us a lesson. And that one child cannot be killed. Cannot be killed. <coughs> Frankly, he can't die till he procreates, if you think it through. All right? <laughs> So it's like, you know, if you want to live, then don't procreate, you know. <laughs> but he wasn't thinking like that. And that's the thing. God controls the way people think. Was it God's will that Jesus drink a little wine vinegar? Yes, it was. It was, it was foreordained. So then it had to be foreordained that someone would bring it there and put it there so it could happen. That's what it means by contingency. If there's going to be that, then there has to be something before that and on. And you see the complexity of it. You can't run the universe. Neither can I. It's too complicated. But God thinks about all the contingencies, everything that must happen. It's amazing. I actually think we're going to spend eternity studying it. We're going to study all the contingencies, what God did, how this happened and then that happened, and how God acted to make sure this... Wow. I mean, amazing. All right? All right, well, let's get to the kind of pastoral point with the few minutes we have left. How can we apply this doctrine to our greatest benefit? And this is chapter 17 in the Institutes, book 1. All right? The meaning of God's ways, Calvin says this. We must so cherish moderation that we do not try to make God render account to us, but so reverence his secret judgments as to consider his will the truly just cause of all things. When dense clouds darken the sky and a violent tempest arises because a gloomy mist is cast over our eyes, thunder strikes our ears and all our senses are benumbed with fright. Everything seems to us to be confused and mixed up. 
but all the while a constant quiet and serenity ever remain in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? I just think that's so powerful. So we must infer that. While the disturbances in the world deprive us of judgment, God, out of the pure light of His justice and wisdom, tempers and directs these very movements in the best conceived order to a right end. And surely on this point it is sheer folly that many dare with greater license to call God's works to account and to examine His secret plans and to pass as rash a sentence on matters unknown as they would on the deeds of mortal men." All right, simply put, on earth sometimes things get really cloudy and difficult and you don't know what's going on and you don't get it. And you will be tempted in those times to do what? Worry, complain and blame God, question God. Is God really among us or not? Does He really still care for me or not? You're going to be tempted to do that. Don't do it because up in heaven it's clear, bright day. He knows exactly what's going on. And though it may be cloudy and misty to you, it's not to God, and He knows what's happening. And you know, it's easy to do in someone else's life, right? You can do it. You can say, oh, isn't it wonderful for Elizabeth Elliot that her husband was killed so that, you know, the Indians could come to faith in Christ. Well, that it may be wonderful, but it's not simple. It's not that simple, you know what I'm saying? It's the kind of thing that you have to just entrust the whole thing to God. But I'm just saying... That same kind of things that work in your life too. You may be going through some pain. You may be going through, through, through some suffering. The, the use of this doctrine is to say God has willed this. I mean, what's the alternative, isn't it? That God hasn't willed it? And there is no purpose to it? There's no point to it at all? It's just mindless suffering? The wheel came up and it was your turn to suffer. And there's nothing that's going to come out of it. Nothing good. I think that's horrible. Not only is it horrible, it's also not true, praise God. There is a purpose and there is a reason behind all of it. God's rule will be observed with respect, said Calvin, and the law and the gospel are comprehended mysteries which tower far above the reach of our senses. But since God illumines the minds of His own with the spirit of discernment for the understanding of these mysteries, which He deigned to reveal by His word, now no abyss is here, rather a way in which we ought to walk in safety, a lamp to guide our feet. So in other words, God gives the Holy Spirit, gives the scripture to help you through those dark times so that His Word is a lamp to your feet, a light to your path, and you get through. Though you're not going to be given full understanding of everything that's happened. But God gives you enough. Now, God's providence doesn't relieve us from responsibility. Okay? Now you go home, you don't even need to keep your eyes open when you drive home. God will guide you. <laughs> he will get you there, right? Sovereignly. Well, you'll probably die and take some other people with you. All right? <laughs> and then we can all say, it was God's will. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> he willed it. It was God's will that you be a complete idiot and misapply this doctrine tonight. Now, Calvin says, look, you know, we have to take this doctrine and not go too far with it beyond what Scripture says. People say that God willed whatever came to pass so they can't be held responsible for what they did. You know, and he lists murders and assassins and all. I say, what could I do? It was God's will. Well, that's not going to work. God doesn't, uh, uh, God's providence doesn't excuse us from due prudence. If the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it. I mean, this is rubber meets the road Christianity here. If uh, he offers helps, then to use them. If he forewarns us of dangers, not to plunge headlong. If he makes remedies available, not to neglect them. You know, that's, it's what he's saying. And I think this may extend even to a proper use of the medical community, for example. There's some people... We, I, Christy and I knew a woman that that was taking medications to help her in her life. And by faith, she stopped taking them and ended up in an institution. I'll never forget visiting her in that institution with steel doors and windows with the, with the steel in them and all that. And it was a horrible place, Danvers State Hospital. Remember that? Did you ever, go, did you ever visit Evie there? And I was, she was not the person we knew in the, in the Bible study. She was just... <coughs> And it's a complicated issue and a complicated question, but God had provided means for her to live a stable life and a good life and a helpful life, and she decided to go a different direction, and it was very difficult for her. Bottom line is the doctrine of providence doesn't free you from needing to look both ways before you cross the street. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't free you from blame for your wickedness and your sin. 
You know, I've got more material here. I want to stop in just five or six minutes. There must be some questions in your mind or arguments back or any of that kind of thing. Or maybe not. We'll be the first group that ever considers this kind of the sovereignty of God. Yes, Rick, go ahead. What a blessing. This is just as rich. When I contemplate God as the first cause, mm-hmm. what Calvin was talking about, mm-hmm. I think it just gives God so much glory, the greatest glory possible belongs to him. And it gives uh, a great peace to me. Mm-hmm. Where I wrestle is, I focus all too often not on the first causes, but on the second causes. Mm-hmm. And that's what takes me down. That's what takes me to fear. That's mm-hmm. what takes me to lack of trust. Mm-hmm. That's what just fuels anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's that constant struggle. Yep. You know, and, and I think the evil one would love to sidetrack us in the, mm-hmm. the sidetrack of, of second causes. Amen. And, and I didn't read all the quotes I gave you here, but look on the sheet. There's one in which he talks about that. And he says, in effect, if Joseph had been thinking about his brothers, he would have been bitter. He was thinking about God and therefore was sweet toward them. If, if Job had been thinking of the Chaldeans, he would have been bitter. Instead, he was thinking about God and said, the Lord gave, the Lord has now taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. If David had been thinking about, at the human level, about Shimei, who's throwing dirt and curses at him and all that, he would have had Joab go off and cut off his head. Instead, he was thinking about God and said, God probably told him to curse. It's, it's all, are you thinking about what God is doing here? Or are you thinking, like Rick said, about those second causes? However, he does temper that the other way and says, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't thank people for their ministry in your life. That God does carve out some people to come and bless you. And you should be thankful toward those human beings that God uses and thank them for that. And I'll say, well, I don't need to thank them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank God. But they don't even need to know that. I mean, this person has done X, Y, and Z for me. I'm going to go into my room. I'm going to close my door. And I'm going to pray to my father who's unseen and thank them for what what they did. That does not work, friends. You'll end up with no friends. (laughs) And Calvin even does that. He says, look, thank the people who bless you. But realize it ultimately came from God, which frankly sweetens it even more, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. To know that it wasn't just they that gave, but it was God through them. Other questions? Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's a good point. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, go ahead. It's it's really difficult, don't you think, sometimes to know how to respond when we have the um, the tsunamis that come along, and and people uh, want to uh, talk about what a tragedy it is, and and is certainly is a tragedy, but um, they don't want to give, they don't want to understand that God could have and did ordain it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just, we don't understand. We can't, our minds can't get around it. I didn't well, hear in all the discussion of Hurricane Katrina or any of the other recent tragedies, anybody really articulate a good, healthy view of God's activity in that. Uh, I'm not saying people did. I'm just saying the mainstream kind of people that were talking, just nobody did a good job with it. They'll never make it to the news. Yeah, probably not. Because, and the answer is really too complex to make it to the news. The news is looking for a simple soundbite, even if it's outrageous, you know, because even outrageous helps their, their ends, all right? But some of the outrageous things are just flat out unbiblical, and all of them are. Here's the thing, you know, God can will, you know, three houses to collapse and have, be doing three different things in each of those families in those lives. Same hurricane, same outcome, different things going on. One of them, Christians, sends them all to heaven. The other non-Christians, he's sending them all to hell. Uh, the others, some of them elect, some are not, some of them survive. I mean, it's just more complex than we can possibly imagine. And, and what we have to get beyond is that God has the right to collapse those three houses. He has the right to do it. Those houses belong to him. Every atom in the universe is his. And he can collapse a Christian's house and everyone in it, they all die and they go to heaven and that's a good thing. It's not a, that's not a tragedy. That's a, a blessed thing that God's doing. And that the non-Christians, they're, they're all, they basically have been executed by God. And that, that, that God had the right to do it and their time had come. And that the other ones, he had the right to keep them alive and then do other things in their lives further on. 
And yeah, the news isn't going to want to hear that. It's just too complex to kind of work all that thing through. They want a simple answer. Any other questions, comments about this? That is awesome that we resolved all of that in, in five <laughs> minutes. That's just, that makes me happy. I'm excited about that. Yeah. It was providential. Can I prevail on you, Flynn, to close this in prayer? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.